You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Let me pray for us. And uh, again, as I said last week, we looked at the first three woes. Um, This week we're going to look at the final three woes of what Christ is speaking to this religious leaders. So let me pray for us and uh, we'll dive in and see what the Lord has. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to gather together to worship you, Lord, to hear from you. Father, I pray, as I did last week, Lord, please give me the right tone. Um, Lord, as uh, these sayings and what Jesus is saying are are hard things. Um, He is absolutely stepping on our toes and asking us to look at our own hearts and look at our lives and judge them against not what man says, but what the Word of God says. Lord, I I pray for the right tone in walking through this. Lord, I pray for our hearts to hear this. Um, Lord, and act accordingly, and live accordingly, and most importantly, believe accordingly. Because many times, it's not so much what we do, but what we believe. Because if we're believing right, then, then our hearts are right, and Lord, we know that our actions will be right. Father, so help us. Um, Everything that I just said, we can't do. It's a supernatural thing that happens with your word and your spirit. And Lord, I pray that that would happen today. Um, We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week I was listening to Paul's trip, Paul Tripp's The Connecting Podcast. And he was talking with his co-host, Shelby Abbott. And Shelby has been in college, collegiate ministry for like 20 years. And, and they sit down and sometimes he has guests. It's a really good podcast. I would absolutely um, refer it to everybody, the Connecting Podcast. And in this podcast, they open it up. They were talking about different things. And, and their main topic um, uh, was something completely different. But I, I just it struck me as I've been studying and looking at this Um, passage and and looking at the woes over the last two weeks, uh, something they were talking about was very relevant to what what we're talking about. And I was was thinking maybe this would be a good illustration to kind of kick things off. And what they were discussing is, and we know that the woes and what the Pharisees and and what the lawyers, what Jesus was pushing them back against is really their self-righteousness. That's what he was pushing against. So um, Paul and Shelby was discussing the self-righteousness of Nebuchadnezzar. You maybe remember this statement in Daniel, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had, he, he was up and down, he, he um, saw the Lord, and he, you know, at the end, we don't know if Nebuchadnezzar would be with us in heaven, we're not completely sure of that, but he sure did have a ride there in Daniel where, you know, he found himself worshiping God and worshiping himself, he found himself eating grass like an animal, um, so he, he went through it. Um, maybe he's, he'll be with us, maybe not, uh, we're not completely sure, but, but in Daniel, there's a statement where you could see his self-righteousness on display. And as in Daniel 4, 29 and 30, it says, At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, I am not, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, we may roll our eyes at this, but as Shelby pointed out, and this is where it hit me, he says, We wake up every day and do the same thing, and say, look at what all I've created. And, and that's where it was like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, Soikis, I, I, I see that. Shelby spoke about his life as a, as a college stu- student at 19, 
when he thought he was good with God. He was doing all the right things, reading the Bible, going to the campus ministry meetings, going to an extra Bible study. He was doing all the right things, declaring himself self-righteous. I'm good. I got, I've checked all the boxes. I'm good. He said that he was in way more danger, and this was interesting the way he pointed this out, he was in way more danger than someone who was out partying and drinking and sleeping around on campus. He's like, he was in way more danger. And I'm like, okay, where are you going with this? Although they were both uh, filling, in other words, he, what he was going to is he's saying they were both filling their lives with something other than the true gospel. Right? And, and, and the reason why he thinks that those that are out doing this is, is because they can hear the gospel. Right? After some, some bad experiences or some bad things that maybe God will send a Christian to, to share the gospel. And they're already in a place where all these things that they've been doing is not fulfilling. But what he was really saying is me, I wouldn't hear it. Because see, I checked all the boxes. I don't need to hear the gospel anymore. I'm good. I, I, I don't need, need to hear it. I, I have no more need. And that's what he was pointing out. And I really think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to these Pharisees and these lawyers. The self-righteous person doing the religious to-do list believes they are living the gospel, so they have no need. They have no need. I'm good. If you don't know that you're needy, you're in a way more danger, spiritually speaking, because you don't see the need for a Savior. And that need is not way back there, it's not when you get baptized, it's every day that you wake up. You have a need for a Savior. See, this is the exact position the Pharisees and also the lawyers, which will be brought into Jesus' conversation here today, find themselves. They have created a system of self-righteousness like no other and have misplaced their priorities. And worse yet, they are leading others away from the true gospel. Jesus is not happy about that. And at dinner that he was invited to, he takes them to task in these six woe statements that we've embarked on starting last week. Because all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, we need to inspect our own lives as we look at our passage today, just like we did last week. Last week I gave you a statement that we will carry into today as well. And just like last week, we will have a question to ask ourselves for each of these woes. It is possible, here's the statement, it is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, yet to be deceived and to experience eternal damnation. I don't want that for anybody. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want you to be deceived, and I don't want to be deceived. But Jesus is taking these men to task. He's not afraid to do it. And unlike the trend in our culture, Jesus is not afraid of being canceled. To even insult people as he speaks truth and love. To be bold. After all, he is God. But after all, we are his ambassadors. We are called to be agents of reconciliation. We've been given the spirit to dwell in us, to give us that boldness to do the same to speak the truth in love, not just to, to put people down, but to speak the truth in love. 
We see this as our passage opens up in verse 45 of chapter 11. It says, One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Like he's like, oh, you better back up, Jesus. You've insulted us also. <laughs> well, Jesus just kind of doubles down on that. The man thought perhaps a word of caution would hinder Jesus from saying anything further. But that's not going to be the case. Surely he did not intend to offend a fine, upstanding, God-fearing man like himself. Maybe what he said will offend us too. But if so, it is not because Jesus has bad etiquette, but only because he knows how badly we need to be confronted with the sinfulness of our sin. That's the love. Again, it's the same thing. Will you, will you stop the person from walking off the cliff? Will you stop the person driving down a road that has no bridge when they think that there's a bridge there? That is the loving thing to do. Speaking that truth in love is the loving thing to do. They're not going to like it. They're going to push back. They're going to do all kinds of things, but that's okay. Jesus says we have two cheeks. Let them push back against both of them. In his rebuttal to the lawyer, he pronounces three more woes. And we see the first one in verse 46. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. To understand what Jesus was saying, we first need to know who the lawyers were. They were different in some ways than the Pharisees. Rather, they were, they, they were not like the lawyers of today. And I know we've covered this back when he was talking to the lawyers earlier. But just to remind ourselves, and, and for those that may not have heard that, but the lawyers that, that he's talking to now are not those that we think of today. Right? They are the Bible scholars and theologians of their day. They are the ones that are tasked with opening up the Word of God, explaining it, and helping people understand it. And they failed to do that. In fact, they, what Jesus is saying is they heaped even more burdens on people. They were tasked to help people follow that, the law. Um, they were men devoted their lives to interpreting and applying the Holy Scriptures. So what was the difference between the Pharisees and these lawyers? Well, if you kind of think of it as um, the Pharisees were a party, you know, almost sort of, and loosely a denomination. So not all Pharisees were lawyers. Not all lawyers were Pharisees, right? Not all Pharisees were people that did nothing but um, biblical things. They, they, they were shop owners or they were tanners or they were blacksmiths. They did other things. So think of like the Pharisee as the big umbrella and then these lawyers are the specific people with specific things that they are tasked to do, and that is the theologian and, and Scripture, opening up Scripture for others to see. So that's kind of the difference between the two. And, and the main problem with, with the lawyers, and, and in some way also with the Pharisees, but these lawyers, what Jesus has really taken them task about is, is they were guilty of legalism. Jesus said they loaded people with heavy burdens. That's what he charged them with. You know where the lawyers stops is look, the things you've said to the Pharisees insult us also. He's like, well, let me show you how you've missed the mark. Let me show you how you have misplaced priorities. In other words, in their interpretation and application of God's law, they came up with all kinds of picky rules that people had to follow. Some would say the tradition of the elders. 
So they had all these laws that they made up, extra laws that everybody had to follow. For example, we know that the law commanded God's people to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. But how exactly was this commandment to be obeyed? So I pulled out a, a section here of just to show you the absurdity and, and the craziness of what these lawyers were doing for peop, two people. And why you understand that they put this burden on people, but don't, don't even bother to help anybody with these burdens that they lay on them. To give just one example, here's what the lawyer said about carrying something on the Sabbath. This is just carrying something. Like you stand up to, to pick something up and carry it. They're calling that work on the Sabbath. So here's what they said. A man, some of this I don't even understand. Like how in the world do you actually do this? But anyway, a man may not carry an object in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder. However, he may carry it on the back of his hand. I just thought you said he couldn't carry it in your hand. Anyway, on the back of his hand, or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet, carried mouth downward. So the wallet has to be mouth downward. Or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. So this is what the lawyers spent their time doing. So we, we're going to make the law, okay, we're going to follow the law. If you're going to follow the law, if Eric's going to follow the law on the Sabbath, this is one, some of the things that he has to do. That's, that's insane. Like, how in the world are you supposed to understand all that? And that's what Jesus is saying. He's, they're, le they're, they're putting these burdens on these people that no one can follow. Another one of these laws was the distance, this is interesting, right? So, so what Jesus was also mad at is all these lawyers, they would find loopholes, kind of like the IRS, right? They, they would find loopholes in everything, right? Another one of these laws was the distance you were allowed to walk on a Sabbath. You're only allowed to walk a thousand yards. You can walk a thousand yards on the Sabbath. If you walk a thousand and one yards, you're working and you're breaking the Sabbath. So, to get around this, to get to places that they wanted to go, get this, um, what they would say is after you walk a thousand yards, you can then tie a rope across the road and establish a new residence, and then you were able to walk 400 more yards. So that was another rule that they had. The interesting thing is, what I didn't understand is, is I'm reading this, and I got, I know, I got way too deep into reading about all this and trying not to bring it all to you so you all don't fall asleep on me. But the interesting thing was this is, okay, so you walk a thousand yards, you tie a rope across the road, but then there's another rule. There's another rule the lawyer said. And the rule was you cannot tie a knot on the Sabbath except in a woman's girdle. So I'm not sure why you can tie a knot to put a rope across the road and establish new things, but you can't tie a rope on a bucket to send it down a well to get yourself some water on the Sabbath. Do you see the absurdity of what we're talking about? And we do it too, right? We do it too. Like, and I know that, and I'm using the Sabbath, and there's people in, sitting in the pews right now saying, but, but Jesus took care of the Sabbath, we don't have to honor it, but I, we're, we're, we're in first century, <laughs> All right, that's what we're talking about right now. So stick with me, please. 
So we would say something like this. Is it, is it okay on the Sabbath to go for a walk? Is it okay on the Sabbath to go for a walk in the grass? Is it okay on the Sabbath to go for a walk in the grass carrying a club? Does it, is it okay to go for a walk on the Sabbath in the grass carrying a club with the end on of it that makes it look a lot like a golf club? Is it okay on the Sabbath to go for a walk in the grass carrying a club that looks a lot like a golf club swinging your arms? Is it okay to go for a walk in the grass on a Sunday or a Sabbath carrying a club that looks like a golf club swinging your arms, but it looks a lot like this? And brothers and sisters, you know and I know that sometime in your Christian life, you've been given something just like that. Right? You've been given something, and it might look differently, right? It might look differently. But you know and I know that we've been given something like that. That it's like if, if you do this or don't do this, I think maybe in, say, in the last 20 years, it's more about if you don't do these things, that makes you holy. I, I just pointed all this out to see the absurdity and what, what Jesus was really pushing back against. Right? What he was really pushing back against. People were taught to obey the rules of men rather than the laws of God. They were led to believe that such legalistic obedience was necessary for their salvation. There's the key. This was necessary. Because remember, they're all looking for the Messiah, and, and they all want to be holy in case they pass away before then. So they were doing all these things to earn their way to God, to make sure that they're holy so they're acceptable for God before God. Just think of this and imagine being held accountable to a study Bible produced by the Internal Revenue Service. And you will get some idea what this was like with all the different rules they have for our taxes and things. To make matters worse, the lawyers did nothing to help people who, was, who were struggling under the weight of this burden. They just heaped these burdens onto them and then they found loopholes for themselves. And now what I didn't understand is, do they tell people about these loopholes or do they just keep them to themselves? Like, well, if you establish new, you know, if you establish a new residence, you can walk another 400 yards. I, I, I couldn't really dive in and, and find that, but it's interesting. They just heap these things on the people to make sure that they can't be in relationship with God because who can follow all of that? I mean, I don't even know how to carry anything on the Sabbath. See, this was a grace issue. Instead of giving grace, they kept laying down more law and they looked down on people who failed to keep it. So not only did they put these burdens on people, they justified themselves by saying, we keep the law and you don't. And they self-justify in that way. Which brings us to our question. Do we present the Christian faith as a law to keep rather than a gospel to believe? Do we present the Christian faith as a law to keep rather than a gospel to believe? Because that's what the gospel is. It's a declaration of what Jesus has done. It's not moralistic. Yes, it has morals. But we are not to teach, to be a Christian is, you don't say, okay, clean yourself up and, and, and be like Jesus and that's how you get. No, you first believe what the gospel, the declaration of what the gospel is. It is a declaration of the good news. 
Let me just nuance that a little bit. Do we present salvation as something that is achieved or something that is received? I think that's the big crux of it all. Do we present the gospel as something that someone has to achieve by doing certain things? Or is it something that is received? Something that is received. If it is something that is achieved, we are putting a burden on people they cannot carry to obtain. And before we dismiss, okay, I'm good there. Let me just ask you this question. Don't think about the people outside of you. Think about the person in the mirror. Do you think that your salvation is something that you've achieved or something that you have received? It starts in the mirror. Because I think that's, that's where we get it wrong the most, isn't it? I think that's where we get it wrong the most because we think, oh no, I didn't do this or oh no, I did this and all of a sudden everything's a mess and now we gotta start working our way there. No, you go back to the cross, you repent and you believe. You look in your heart and see, okay, why did I choose this to worship than this? But it truly does begin with ourselves. I think that's who we're the most hardest on all the time. So when we get up and we look in the mirror, or when we fail to do something, or, or whenever we're looking at, at, at all the different things that we could do, and we're like, oh, if I don't do that, then somehow I don't measure up. Well, you're still trying to earn your way to heaven, and, and that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is a declaration of what Christ has done, and it's believing it. If you don't understand this for yourself, you will have no chance of teaching it to others. It's really hard to teach to others if, if we're always beating ourselves up and thinking that we never measure up, we never measure up, we never measure up. Much of what we do as a church is to reach out, unlike these lawyers, to help you lay down your efforts to learn your, earn your salvation and help you to clear away the idols so you believe in the gospel. At the end of the eight weeks or how many of your weeks we've done how people change in two weeks, we'll be looking Many who have been looking at their sin have picked a project. They might be looking for three steps to get rid of this sin, but there is no three steps. At the very end of it, what we're going to look at is the cross and the gospel message and then ask whether or not you believe. Whether or not you believe. And I know there might be some things needed, you know, like... Joseph ran whenever he was prevented with sin. He ran out of the place. Sometimes there are things we need to do. Sometimes there, we got to maybe even look at our habits and, and see if these habits are, are turning us in and, and stumbling us into sin. But the end of it all, it's do you believe the gospel? Do you believe who God is? Do you believe what he has done? Do you believe who you are because of what he's done? Do you believe those things? When we turn to Jesus in faith, trusting him to forgive our sins and give us eternal life, he releases us from the oppressive burden of legalistic righteousness so that we are free to live for the glory of God. There is such freedom there for us. This is why Sam read Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My burden is light. Jesus moves on, pronounces a second woe to the lawyers, to their murderous rebellion against the word of God. And although he's talking about prophets, he's really talking about the word of God because we know that the prophets were sent to do what? Proclaim the word. Right? They, they, they heard from God and they went and they proclaimed what God wants to say. Verse 47 through 48 says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are a witness and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Today, visitors to Jerusalem can see similar tombs in the Kindred Valley, built in the memorial of various prophets from the Old Testament. Making these memorials was considered a pious act, a way to honor the ministry of Israel's former prophets. It was also a way that they felt like they were going to atone for their sins, another work, who had put so many of those noble prophets to death. Right? Their fathers is the one to kill the prophets. Jesus had a different take, though. He had a, he's like, these tombs are not reconciling you to God in any way. Rather than honoring the prophets by building these tombs, they were joining their ancestors in killing them. Now, what do you mean? Well, a, a scholar paraphrased it this way, and I think it's really helpful. They killed the prophets, meaning their fathers, and their ancestors are killing them again. Here is how one, again, how a scholar paraphrased it. They killed the prophets. You make sure they are dead. You kill the prophets. You make sure they are dead. The tombs themselves were not the issue. The issue was the rebellion in the hearts of the spiritual leaders as they refused to listen to God's word. That was, that was Israel's whole problem all through the Old Testament. They wouldn't listen to what God said. The lawyers of that day made a grand show of outward piety, but their hearts were far from God. They had the same sinful attitude as their fathers before them, and thus they shared in their guilt. They were guilty of pride, hypocrisy, injustice. Therefore, even while they tried to honor the prophets with their tombs, they dishonored them with their lives. In other words, they weren't living as the prophets declared for them to live. The proof would come in what these men did with the greatest prophet of all. That's the proof. Jesus showed this by taking the history of the prophets and connecting it to the world-changing events of his own time. And this is verses 49 through 51. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Here the Son is lifting the veil on the Father's purpose in sending the prophets. Why did God send His people the prophets? He sent them to teach the will of God, of course, but He did it with full knowledge that they would be persecuted and killed. God's sovereignty in action. This was God's plan in all its wisdom. He would send prophets to his people and his people would put them to death. Jesus said from Abel to Zechariah, this is not A to Z like we think of it. This is from Genesis to Chronicles because the Hebrew Bible, that's how it's ordered. 
Genesis, the first book, Chronicles being the last book. So A to Z, yeah, it kind of works for us because that's our, our alphabet. It certainly isn't um, the Hebrew alphabet. But what, what he's saying is from Genesis to Chronicles, all those prophets in between. Well, all those prophets were doing one thing. They had their arm out pointing to one person, and that's Jesus. And he's saying, look, this generation is going to do the same thing that your fathers did. God has sent you a prophet and here I am, and you will shed my blood, just like you did them. Jesus' point is that God's people have always rejected God's messengers, bringing God's word, and they are about to do it again. So what will they do with Jesus? As the Son of God, Jesus not only brought the Word from God, but He was the Word. He was the Word. In His public ministry, He proclaimed the true gospel message of repentance and faith. That was the message from God. Repent and believe. He's been saying it for the other, all these chapters that we've been looking at. Have faith. Trust in Me. So again, what would they do with him? Here Luke gives us another hint that he would be despised and rejected, and the guilt of his blood would be charged against the people of this generation. Like all the words of Christ, his prophecy came true. The leaders of Israel, the lawyers and the Bible scholars, were the very ones who arrested Jesus in the middle of the night, brought him up on false accusations, dragged him before Pilate, incited the crowds against him, and demanded his death. These very people that we're speaking of now. He's saying that your fathers rejected the prophets and now you will reject the prophet. And by the way, you will kill him just like your forefathers did. When they did this, they took full responsibility for it, uttering some of the most chilling words ever spoken. Matthew 27, 25 says this, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So months before the cross, Jesus is predicting exactly what will happen. These people will actually cry out and say, the blood is on us. Pretty remarkable. By putting Jesus to death, they became guilty for the blood of the Son of God. Jesus said that all the blood of the prophets will fall on you because all of the prophets testified about me. This is how he charged them with the blood of all the prophets. Which brings us to our question. Like, how are we going to get there? We're not killing prophets. Well, our sin killed the great prophet. That's why he went to the cross. Not sins, our sin. Our rooted sin from, from Adam. It put Jesus on the cross. So the question is, is do we honor the prophets or are we in rebellion against the words that they spoke for God? Do we honor the prophets? And when I say prophets, plural, that's Jesus included. Or are we in rebellion against the words that they spoke for God? We might even have to back the question up and ask, do you know what God has said? Have you read the book? The best way to honor God's messengers is not by erecting their tombs, but by living the way they taught us to live. 
Otherwise, we too are in rebellion against the Word of God. What is the best way for us to honor Jesus Christ as the greatest prophet of all? We honor him by confessing the guilt of our sin, the sin that sent him to the bloody cross, and by claiming his blood as our atonement. We honor him by being in relationship, knowing him as the Son of God and Savior of our sinner, of our sin. We honor him by living in the basis of his grace rather than any extra biblical law. We live in grace and we can't put law on other people, including ourselves. Jesus had one more woe to dish out. Woe to you lawyers, for you take away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The lawyers were called to lead people to salvation. They're supposed to be explaining Scripture and leading them to salvation because they taught the Scriptures. They were supposed to hold the key to saving knowledge. But Jesus said they had taken the key away. Now, because they had lost the key, they themselves could not enter eternal life. Even worse, they were keeping other people from entering as well. We know clear up to the very end, they refused to believe Jesus. There are men who were supposed to usher people to God were blocking the way. They were taking the knowledge away. They spent all their time reading, studying, debating, and teaching the Bible. Yet rather than making its message clear, they were only confusing people about the truth. So what is the key of knowledge, the secret that unlocks the mysteries of salvation? Jesus Christ is the key. The key was right in front of them, but they did not see it. And in fact, they were pushing against, back against Jesus. Yet rather than making its message clear, they were only confusing people about the truth. They were just confusing people. Boy, do we have so much of that today. It's so readily accessible today because we can jump in and, and, and see all kinds of things. I'm not saying that... One person has it all right, because not one person has it all right. I know there's one theologian that always says that, and I've heard it said many times, but many great theologians said, you know, well, we have probably about 80% of it right, and we'll figure the 20% we have wrong out in heaven. But the main thing is the main thing, and that's the gospel, and I'm pretty sure we're declaring that rightly. The key to saving knowledge is that is the grace that God offers to guilty sinners through Jesus Christ. The way to be saved, the way to have eternal life is not by works of our own obedience. Rather, it is to confess our sins and put our trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Our last question goes like this. Do we trust Christ alone for our salvation? Or do we trust Christ plus all these things that we do? Or maybe it's we trust Christ plus all the things we don't do. Either way, we're adding to the gospel. He, Jesus, is the key to everything. Without the key, he cannot enter. we cannot enter eternal life. The only true and saving knowledge of God comes through Jesus Christ. Only through him can we ever be saved. Once we understand this, we need to do everything we can to help other people understand it as well. By the time the dinner was over, Jesus offended everybody. And we see their response in 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying away for him to catch him in something 
he might say. They missed salvation. They would rather keep to their own law, disobey God's greatest prophet, and not trust him as Christ. See, what happened to them is they could not bring themselves to the seventh woe. They could not bring themselves there. And you're like, Joe, there's not a seventh woe here. Right, but oftentimes, things in the Bible come in sevens, and I know that there are people that, that go nuts over numbers and stuff like that, and we're not going about to do that. But where else is there woes in the Bible? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 5, you see God pronouncing six woes against the wickedness of his people. But there's a seventh woe. And see, this is what the Pharisees and this is what the lawyers missed. And today I pray that you do not miss this woe for yourself. The seventh woe comes in chapter 6, and that woe is the one the Pharisees and the lawyers missed. Isaiah 6, 5 says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, religion hides our need for a Savior. I pray today as we take communion and we are reminded of how we are saved, we cry out to our Lord and Savior, woe is me. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray as we've walked through these hard sayings of what Jesus is correcting in the Pharisees and the lawyers. Lord, that we would lay down our self-righteousness. Lord, that we would, we would look in the mirror and, and honestly ask ourselves, hey, am I earning my salvation or do I know and trust and believe that it's something that I've received through grace, through faith, through the finished work of the cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to say, as Isaiah, woe, woe is me. I need a savior. Lord, I ask that you would grant that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.